So you've been a judge now for five years on The Great Canadian Bake Off. Do you have a favourite contestant on the show or can't you say that? No, I don't have. I mean, I love them all and I don't have any favourite one for the only reason that I trained very hard not to have any bias. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France or around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. But above all, they love it. Today, it's part two of our conversation with Bruno Felderson, who has become one of North America's best pastry chefs. In this episode, we chat all things TV cooking competitions, the Great Canadian Bake Off, a few things about pastry, and what is Bruno's favourite thing about France. You'd be surprised to learn it has nothing to do with food. Let's dive right into part two of this chef profile on Fabulously Delicious with Bruno Feldenson. So in Canada, is there any similarities, do you think, from uh, France to Canada, more so than there is in the US? I mean, obviously, we have you have... French parts of Canada, where people speak speak French, etc. But do you find that the Canadians are more similar to French than the US? No, I think it's a different, it's a third, <laughs> a third breed, a third breed. I think, uh, um, you know, I look at it this way. Toronto compares themselves to, to New York, and New York couldn't give a fuck about Toronto. Vancouver always, you know, Claims are better than Toronto, and Toronto don't give a fuck about Vancouver. And Vancouver is like, well, we are like San Francisco. San Francisco is like, what's in Vancouver? So it's different. It's changing for the better. But at the end of the day, Vancouver is a small town. It's a provincial town. It's small. It's only good and dynamic because of the amount of immigration we have. That brings a lot to the city in terms of diversity, culture. But if we don't, if we don't have that, it will be kind of boring, you know. But the surrounding are beautiful. I can ski 30 minutes away, like world-class ski mountain, even going to a... Is the produce like France? Is the quality there? Yeah, I think it's better than it used to. So farmers, it's surrounded by land that grows fantastic stuff. So there is a... I think Canadians are very conscious of food security. In the last 10 years, there is a lot of investment and, and we do produce a ton of food. Um, you know, two years ago, I drove from Vancouver to Toronto and I realized first it's a huge country. And then between Vancouver and Toronto, there is the prairies that grows a ton of wheat, pulses, you name it. And you're like, those guys feed us every day, you know, just farmers. But around Vancouver, the fish, for sure. I mean, salmon is <clears throat> like a religion here. Uh, oyster, seafood. Uh, link code, black code, those fish are amazing, crabs. Um, and then you get some cattle, but I think the, better, the best part of cattle is Alberta, you know, for the beef. But you can find good, good poultry, ducks. There is, um, you know, farms that specialize, and there is even truffles. You know, I was surprised that I uh, know somebody who has two Italian uh, truffle dogs who go find truffles uh, who are Quite good, actually, you know. So, um, and you can forage, you can, yeah, there is a food culture that it's, it's quite good, very dynamic, uh, very diverse. One industry is picking up. So it's, it's exciting to be part of it for sure. Quebec is different. Quebec, it's, it's a different world, you know. Uh, it's expected. You expect to have great food in Quebec. Uh, I think Montreal is fantastic because of 
food concept. I mean, you look at, you go there, I go there every year and you could walk on the street and there is this little window and somebody out of a small studio created an amazing coffee shop and he sells his coffee out, out of the windows. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. It's a no-brainer. That food concept came up and you're like, I want to do the same. And that Montreal is good for that. It's good for um, for down-to-earth, rustic. Uh, yeah, every year I go to Montreal, there is a new cafe, a new something. A lot of people would know you from the Great Canadian Bake Off as a judge there, um, but you are actually a contestant on uh, Sweet Sweet, what is it? Sweet Genius, uh, Sweet Genius, Sweet Canada. Genius. We Donut Showdown. I need to um, get that and see what Donut Showdown is. And um, and beat Bobby Flay. Which was your favorite experience out of those? Um, so Sweet Genius, I apply, got selected, show up. I have no idea what he was. So I, I don't think I even saw an episode of it. I don't know. I passed the first round. I don't know how. I kind of learned on the spot. And, you know, it was a great experience. And I, I never do those to win. I do those competitions for the experience of it because it's, it's a thrill. It's, it's, it's different. It's magical. It's so unexpected. So uh, Sweet, uh, Sweet Genius was like, you know, I passed the first round, lost in the second. I was thrilled, happy. I was like floating. I just love it. And uh, then I got second one was Chop Canada. This one I was better prepared. Um, you know, it's the rush, the cooking part. The you know, I always say, you know, if in doubt, if you, if you have an ingredient, you don't know what to do with it. Just fry the damn things. Try <laughs> it. So you know, I apply those principles when you do comp- cooking competition. I did this on MasterChef, Bruno. I did exactly that. Smoked eel. I, I had no idea how to cook it, so I just thought. Oh, a croquette. Why not? I'll make a smoked eel croquette. And they said that I was the smoked eel master. I'd never cooked it before in my life. <laughs> it's the same with, uh, you know, just add more ingredients, more, just, you know, create that complexity of flavor. It might work or it might not work, but, you know, don't be lazy. Just add stuff to it. So on, on, on Chopped, I went to the final and, um, you know, great dish. My first two dishes were great. The, fa- the dessert was a bit because I got tired and, you know, you shoot the whole day from 6 a.m. And if you do the final, you, I think it's 8 p.m. But again, I left thrilled. I left happy. As I was so happy for my competitor that he won. And, you know, and, uh, and that's something I think for success in life. You should always be happy of other people's success. You should be thrilled about it. And I always look at, you know, even people who who are my direct competitor. I'm happy for them. If they are successful, it's great. You know, it's inspiring. And 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 I think that's why I was cast again in two of our shows, you know, because people know I don't I'm not bitter. Because I've I've seen people who are so upset because they lose. I'm like, dude, you know, don't be, you know. So then I did uh donut showdown. Uh, again, I lost in the final, but I was super happy to be there, to be in the final, to what I created. And I was happy for uh, the, the chef who won. I'm like, yeah, great, you know, let's celebrate. And Big Bobby Flay was tougher because, you know, it's it's Bobby Flay. It's different. So I was very intimidated. He's, he remembered me from my time in New York. So he came to see me. He said, Bruno, good to see you. Um, I think I could have been better prepared. Um, you know, but I was a bit um, 
frozen in the moment. So my brain wasn't like fresh. I, I was missing the little sharp. So I lost on the first round again another chef who went on with against Bobby Flay. She ended up losing. I got very bitter about it. And I told her, you don't, <clears throat> you know, live happy because it's all about the experience. You know, I moved to the state not to be bitter. I didn't move to Canada to be angry. I moved for the experience. And you have to apply this all the time. But that teach me the what it takes to compete. And when I became a judge, then I can understand what they go through. Right. Well, I was going to ask that. So then how did the opportunity come about to be a judge on the Great Canadian Bake Off? So, you know, they um, they won't tell you anything. So I got a call from CBC, which is, you know, the uh, national uh, network in Canada. It's like ABC in Australia. And they say, well, there is a show we want to do. Would you be interested? I'm like, what kind of show? We cannot tell you. And, you know, I'm like, no, maybe not. <laughs> And they say, you know, could we do an interview with one of our casting agents? I say, maybe. So I do my first interview and I told her, I said, listen, I think there is better pastry chef out there for that job than me, you know? And that was it. Then a week later, they called me again and said, Bruno, you know, we want to talk about you. To you, would you fly to, to Toronto to meet us to do some technique on camera? I'm like, okay, I go, you know. We're good to lose. I spent a few days in Toronto, which is a city I love. So I fly to Toronto, bump into my best friend at the airport with a pastry chef who is being calling for the show too. I'm like, Thomas, what are you doing here? So I'm going to Toronto for what? Uh, well, the CBC called me. I'm like, here we go. So we end up going to Toronto together and then we know nothing much. So we, sh- we are put in a hotel. Next day, we, we are driven to the studios to do the interview on camera, the whole chemistry and, the, you know, and they, um, I remember Thomas and I, we walk into the room and there is maybe 20 guys for the job. And I look at Thomas and he look at me and say, dude, what a fucking waste of time. They will never pick us because those guys in the room were like models, you know, it was an Australian guy, blue eyes, blonde, like straight from Bondi beach in Australia. There is skinny jeans, tattoos, hipsters. I mean, you name it. And there is two average Joes, me and Thomas. Bruno, Bruno, Bruno. Now, you're selling yourself short there. You've got that French accent. I mean, hello. And Thomas is German, so we play a trick. No, he's so, not getting in. He's not getting in, for sure. So, German. Thomas, I took a German accent when I did the stuff, <laughs> and Thomas took the French accent. So, we kind of play the, you know, so one of the casting director was confused because I show up and said, ah, I'm Thomas. Nice to meet you, you know. And Thomas went, oh, my name is Bruno. So we closed it. <laughs> but we did on camera testing, so we kind of fake the whole thing. They hire actors. And, I, you know, I, I live in L.A. for four years and have friends who are, who are actors. And I, I, know, I learned one thing in acting. If you try too hard, you're not yourself. And you won't, they won't cast you. And everybody else was like, I look at them, I look as, on camera, and they are like, they're not themselves. They're just, they pretend, they were acting, they, they were creating just mannerism. And me, I just go and, but what we had, we had a lot of recipe to taste and those recipes had mistake in them. And we have to kind of understand the problem and explain and be, and doing it in a whole constructive way. So I remember was this muffins who obviously was no eggs inside. So when I tried they want to see to see reaction. And my reaction was like, you know, 
you don't want you want to critique without being critical. You want to you know explain that mm, that muffin is lacking texture. You know, did you forget anything? Because I feel you know maybe maybe you don't have the right amount of eggs. You know, I mean, look at the bounce, and then you explain. It's one thing to critique, but if you don't explain why, so I say, look, your muffin. You know, it's very dense. It's lacking that bounce back, that beautiful texture you will expect in a muffin. You can even see it the way it's rounded. You know, it, it wasn't created that, you know, and I think, you know, the eggs, either you forgot or you didn't put enough, but there is an egg problem. And then what do you think? Try it yourself, you know. So you, you create that connection. And I guess they love what they saw. So I did, I think we did like six on camera technique. And next day they called me, I was still in my hotel. They say, would you mind to come back again today? So, and it was just me and Thomas. We are the last two guys. We did another whole day on camera. And Thomas told me, I don't want to do it because it's not me. It's not uh, what I want to do. He said, Bruno, it's yours. I don't want to do it. And I told Thomas, you know, you're my best friend. If you get it, I'd be happy for you. I'd be thrilled. He said, I said, don't say no because you owe me. I mean, I want you to fight for that job. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Do you have a passion for one particular French dish, ingredient, or cooking technique? Add to that, do you have a story to tell? Well, I'd love to hear it, and I'm sure many of our Fabulously Delicious audience would too. So, get in touch, slide into my DMs. Hmm, I've always wanted to say that. On Instagram at Andrew Pryor Fabulously, as I'd love to hear from you, and hopefully have you on Fabulously Delicious. So you've been a, t- a judge now for five years on the Great Canadian Bake Off. Do you have a favourite contestant on the show or can't you say that? No, I don't have. I mean, I love them all and I don't have any favourite one for the only reason that I trained very hard not to have any bias against any bakers. That my judgment is only based on the bakes and the baking, nothing else. If I have a favorite that will infringe of my ability of judging. So I, and actually we don't know who they are until the day before we start shooting. There is very little, we have no connection with them and I, I won't even engage with them off set. So we're on set, we talk, but off camera we don't have any, because you don't want to create, and I think human nature is to develop connection with people. Yep. And I don't want that to interfere with my ability to judge properly. So I can tell you, I do have a ton of respect for all of them because it's not easy. And I do tell them, you know, I mean, every season the same. Nobody wants to go home first. And it's the hardest one to judge too. And I always tell them, look at it, it's like a book. Chapter one is that important as chapter eight, nine, and 10. So, you know. But, you know, favorite desserts, what I tried, I mean, some of the stuff is fantastic. Baker, I think some are better than others. Of course, some are more talented. But at the end of the day, I can't because, and I never wanted, um, because uh, they are all amazing. You know, I mean, to be there, to do what they do under a tent in summer in Toronto, we're talking about days when it's 40 degrees Celsius under the tent, and they do it. And you know, there is no fake. We, if it's two hours, it's two hours. We don't do, let's do it again. Oh, sorry, you know. And all of them, I mean, there is very little failure. We do design the whole program to be sure they are 
set for success. You know, if you fail because you fail, not because you run out of time, it's designed in a way that, um, you know, it's nurturing, you build, and they all come friends from day one, they, you know, I mean, I do go, like in Vancouver, one of the bakers organize every year Christmas dinner, so it's getting bigger and bigger. <clears throat> I do join them, you know, and they become friends for life. It's an amazing experience. I mean, keep in mind, there is nothing to win. There is no money prize. There is no, um, you know, it's a huge time commitment. You know, if you make it to the final, it's seven weeks commitment and paid. And so respect for all of them, tremendous amount of respect. Uh, none, of, none of them are my favorite because you know, I look down just at what I have to judge. Uh, I think it's super important. You don't be, you don't judge based on ethnicity, where you come from, where you learn, your grandparents, where they come from, the color of your skin has no play for me in my judgment. I think for other judges, the same. We look at the bake. <clears throat> I can tell you one of the best chocolate mousse I had in my life was on the set in season four from Rafikat. Wow. She made wow. a chocolate mousse in the semi-final. That was probably the best chocolate mousse I had in my entire career, if not the best. And um, and I want to remain that way that, you know, I look at the skills, the product was presented. That's my criteria. I don't, uh, because otherwise it's a circle you fall and it's very hard. And I think the other contestant we feel, if you have a, a favorite, I think people can catch it. People can see. People can, you know, because you you can look at people do a little smirk, a little smile, and the other contestant will see it right away. You know, say, oh, you know, and that takes away from. It's not fair for anybody. So you know, we say hi, we wave, but we don't have any interaction, and I think it's the best way to do it. The host of that first season, which was Dan Levy, he is just a part a pioneer in what he does you know in uh, Schitt's Creek it was just an amazing an amazing television series what was it like to spend that time uh, working with him so to be on TV was never part of my big plan to be on TV next to Dan was even even the remote part of my big plan so and so and I, I watched funny enough the year before I watched season one or two of Schitt's Creek and then when I asked who's on the show with us, somebody said Dan Levy. But I didn't put two and two together until a few days before we met. I'm like, fuck. So I was like, I wouldn't say starch truck, but I'm like, this is big. I mean, I need to perform. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform to, you know, and my frustration on season one was I was never trained to be on TV. I was thrown in. You know, so I get very frustrated because, you know, it's a long day, a shoot day, an episode is two days, 6.30 to, in the morning to 8, 9 p.m. at night. And so to keep your energy level is very difficult. But season one, I felt I, w- I had the same narrative. I have the same. I was repeating myself all the time. And, and Dan was good in a way like he never made me felt I don't belong. He always made me felt I was part of the team. Um, he was very nurturing. He said, don't worry, it's fine. It's okay. And those little moments was like, thank you, you know, that he will look at me, you know, because I will be, um, you know, I will be on set, you know, when we do the, 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 on a technical in, in sixth place and, you know, whose are those? So I had the line to say, whose are those? Now in French, we don't say that, 
we don't have that. And for me, season one, who's is this? You know, and I remember people laughing on the back and it kind of frustrated me. I know he wasn't, you know, it's just, it was cute. But I'm like, I don't want to be on TV seen as a cute guy. I want to be seen as a professional because Dan is putting his time, Dan is Dan's reputation as well. I want to be, I want to be seen as a professional. So season one was struggling for me internally. Like I felt I didn't belong there. I felt I wasn't worth it. I felt even like, why did you choose me? I, I can't even pronounce, you know. But Dan was very supportive. Dan is a very busy man. I mean, keep in mind, Shit Creek, he act, produce, and write it. So he was doing, on season one and two, he was working on Shit Creek at the same time for the following seasons. So he has his own team. But still, he made time to say, Bruno, thanks, you did great today. And I remember leaving feeling like not great and just for him to say, you know, good job. And because he's a professional and he knows what he's doing. Uh, Julia was fantastic. She was so cool down to earth. So season one, I struggled internally. I guess I did well because season two, I was called back. But season two, I came back prepared. I took lesson. There is a lot of technique you can learn. You know, when you're in front of a camera, you want to say everything right away. I learned technique like pause, brief, capture the moment. And there is technique of space and time in front of a camera. And it's not easy, you know. So I learned this. I learned how to speak clearly, slower, articulate, create that narrative that capture people. Uh, so I did a lot of off-seasons training. And I remember one of the uh, trainers told me, he said, Bruno, in the eyes of the viewers, you are the expert. So you have to speak clearly. You have to express properly. And then season two, I was better. And Dan saw it. Dan is like, dude. What happened during the break? I say, you know, I took lessons because, I, I, you know, I want to be worth it. I, I don't want to waste any, anybody's time, you know. Then didn't come, in, come back on season three because I know season two, he was struggling between shooting Shit Creek. And I think he wanted his last season of Shit Creek to be the big boom. So he didn't come back. Julia had a big contract with a, uh, a new show in the US. So he was timing we moved some of the production, but they couldn't have them both on, time, on set at the same time. So they pick over, um, over host for season three. Again, it's, it's always about timing, how to coordinate the schedule of four people on set. Keep in mind, uh, one season is eight weeks of shooting. Do you want to support Fabulously Delicious, the podcast, and learn more about French food? Then join me and some of the wonderful people cooking it and producing it. Hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts, be it Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. This is your weekly French food news. With severe drought in Canada, a lower-than-expected harvest in France, and the war in the Ukraine, they have all created a shortage in the production of mustard seeds, which is affecting the production of mustard in France. Price of mustard in stores around the country has increased by more than 10%, and some stores have empty shelves due to a lack of supply. Producers have stated that production is down 20-25%. to 25%. Sunflower, olive, and other oil supplies in French supermarkets, and sunflower oil in the UK, 
have been limited by supermarkets to one bottle per customer to tackle the lack of supply of oils as well. Netflix has announced the return in June of the popular cooking show Iron Chef. French-born Dominique Crenn has been announced as one of the competing chefs for the show. Dominique, born in Versailles, moved to the US in the late 80s and is the only female chef in the USA to attain three Michelin stars and was awarded the James Beard Foundation Award of Best Chef West in 2018. The 2024 Olympics in Paris has vowed to double the amount of vegetarian food and sourced locally for the Olympics in a bid to reduce the Games' carbon footprint. Organisers unveiled the Games' food vision at the Change Now Summit in the French capital. Under the plans, organisers want to increase the amount of vegetarian food on offer, ensure that 80% of it comes from France, and cut the use of single-use plastics by half compared to previous games. Organisers hope that the Paris Olympics 2024's sustainable approach to food will be one of the big success stories of the Games in two years' time. How can I have you on the podcast and not ask you about French pastry? Is choux pastry really a pastry or is it more of a paste? Well, it, it becomes a pastry once you fill up with custard. Or, you know, but it's, it's, I mean, the choux paste has very little sugar, like a tiny amount. So, uh, but it, it is used. I would say 90% is used in, in pastry, but... You can make gougere with it, and it's the same recipe. You just put cheese. So you know, it's looked. You know, it's it was probably developed by cooks to make gougere, and then pastry took it. I don't know the whole story, but the way I see it, you know, uh, it was a, a, a cook trying pastry. Short crust pâté sucre or puff pastry, rough puff. Are they French or are they from somewhere else? So rough puff is not French because the French will not allow it in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you need to learn that technique. So, um, but it's a good way to, sh- it's a good shortcut because nobody has a technique or the time to make puff pastry. And, you know, let's face it, you know, regular home is not easy to make. I don't do a pastry, uh, puff pastry here because it's so difficult and frustrating. Uh, so it's a good way to make it. It's fast, it's short. And if you do it well, you can, it's it's flaky, it's tasty, it's crispy, so I don't, I don't have any problem. Uh, pâte brisée, pâte sucrée, you know, it's classic. Pie dough, when you come to North America, with lard and shortening. It, it, to make a good pie, you need a pie dough. You know, I've done pies with pâte sucrée, pâte sablé, it, it's not the same. A pie dough with a, a short bread, you know, a short dough, it's better, I think. And I don't have, you know, I love butter, I love but. I got to say, a uh, flaky dough with lard, it's nothing wrong with that, you know. But under the right circumstances, you know, there, there is a love of pies in North America. To respect it, you have to embrace it. You have, you know, one of my first cookbooks I bought in the U.S. was an American baker by Jim Dodge. Jim Dodge. Um, you know, a guy who was training Italian American, but an amazing pastry chef. And I bought his first cookbook. It's all about pies, crisp, <clears throat> cobblers. So that's, I never heard, but that technique of juicy pies, of, you know, the dough sucking into it. It's a whole different approach from French. It's, it's simple, but not that easy to achieve, you know. And I learned a lot from that of principle of baking, of dough, of, you know, I, I use butter 90% of the time, but 
a flaky pies, you need lard for it, you know. Yeah. And of course, I don't eat lard because, you know, I always say, you know, I only eat stuff I can put on my bread. If I can spread it on my bread, I eat it. <clears throat> lard, I don't. But on a, on a flaky dough, it works better, you know. You, any, you know. When you're making some pastry, the recipe will always ask for chilled butter. Why is that? Uh, so, so on, on those chilled butter, you know, it's a fat content. So, uh, if you want to, mostly if you want to sable, if you want to, you know, create that texture. If you put your butter soft, it's just going to melt. It doesn't create that structure for the dough. So, um, I use it cold, but I use room temperature butter from other doughs. If you want to cream it, it's better to use room temperature. So, if you want to be a cookie dough, so it really depends the application. Um, yeah, uh, so, but for any kind of sablé texture, crumble, of course, you need a cold butter. But if you want to cream it, then room temperature. And then if you're using the cold butter, should we be chilling the other ingredients, like the flour and the sugar at the same time? I don't. <clears throat> like, you know, people sift flour. I, I told you why. You have to sift flour in the past because flour was full of flies, bees. Rats, <laughs> drops. That's why you really sifted the flour. Now I only sift it if I want to create like an angel food cake or very light texture. Otherwise, I don't sift my flour because they're all cleaned. So, you know, it's, I, I don't chill my flours. I don't chill the ingredients, the butter, because I use small amount at, at home. But even in my professional kitchen, I don't, you know, unless it's for a specific technique. But I don't remember which one would it be, you know, so uh, you can get away with it. That's another question about I wanted to ask you. How long should you keep flour for? That's, it's, it, I think the problem in France, in, in North America and probably in Australia, you get cake flour, all-purpose flour, bread flour. So they, they have different gluten strength. In France, you don't. <clears throat> it's pretty much all uh, bread flour. So there's more strength. And within... Even bread, a, a French flour bread, a bread French flour probably has more gluten than a North American f bread flour. So, you know, you, you need to adjust your moisture content. Yeah. And uh, so that's one thing. Flour do dry over time, I will say. You know, yeah. But uh, that's why, you know, a lot of cookbook, it's all by measurement, which is not very accurate. So I have a cookbook out and people reach out to me, say, you know, it didn't work out the same way. I'm like, a cup of flour in my home, probably a bit different than a cup of flour in your home. And my flour in winter is a bit different. So, you know, I scale everything. I weight everything because it's very accurate. But for a cookbook, I have to do it in cups and teaspoons, which is not accurate for flour, definitely not. Uh, so, you know, keep your flour in an airtight container. They do absorb moisture. So if you leave... In a very wet environment, they will feel a bit more heavier, mostly if it's outside. But it's not gonna it's not gonna catch moisture overnight. But it does play a role of quality of the flour for sure. Yeah. What's your favorite pastry to use, and what do you make with it? So I love creme brulee. Mm -hmm. Because that's not a pastry. Yeah, but see, English speaking. They use pastry for, for me. It's, it's, it's la pâtisserie. So ah, la pâtisserie, right. I count, yes, you know, of course, and, yes, and, you know, like yes. Petit four, biscuits. A biscuit for me is different than what you get in England. Yeah. So for me, a biscuit is a bit different. So pâtisserie. So for me, pâtisserie, like in French, will be more like what you buy in a retail store. 
So, uh, an éclair, chocolate éclair. Yeah, uh, yeah. nothing like that dough texture and that filling. But you can get it on a great donuts in North America. I mean, Vancouver has a lot of uh, artisan donuts maker. And it's the same kind of, you know, Boston cream pie donut. Has the same texture filling than an éclair, you know. But, you know, if I go back to France, it's oh, I always buy éclairs, you know, it's... You know, this guilt, you, you bite into the eclairs and it's designed to bite into it, you know, to snack. And, uh, you know, it hoos a little on the side, you lick your finger. So the eclair is a dessert to go, um, but the dessert to make at home, to play around, to be creative, creme brulee, because you can do whatever you want. You, you know, yeah. I made a, well, a pop, corn creme brulee. Popcorn creme brulee, a corn creme brulee, <gasps> a candy can creme brulee. You can do a cotton candy creme brulee. You replace the sugar with cotton candy. And that creates that, you know, it relates to pop culture. You know, it relates to art that's accessible to everyone. Everybody enjoys uh, cotton candy. If you incorporate it into a, a basic desert, then you know your spectrum of audience is much bigger. And it's fun too. How do you make a corn creme brulee? So it's different ways. You use a corn to infuse. So you're not going to puree. You infuse everything with a corn. And corn is a very starchy, corn is starch. So as a starchy, you let, so you boil your cream, you get your corn that's been roasted in the oven, put it inside, let it infuse. You strain everything, check the flavor. You should have a good corn flavor. And then you can use a caramelized corn on the top to enhance the flavor. You bake it like regular creme brulee. And, you know, popcorn, I do my popcorn. It's like a sponge. So you infuse your warm cream, strain everything, readjust the volume because you will lose some. But that creme brulee takes like popcorn, <clears throat> you know. And then you decorate, you caramelize it, decorate with caramelized popcorn with sea salt on the top. Cotton candy, or I substitute sugar with cotton candy. So I know if you do this in France, you know, they, they're gonna, you're going to be banned from the kit. But it's creative. It's fun. Um, you know, and that's what cooking and pastry is. It's to be that creative part. You don't need to be a genius to do it. You just play around. And I remember when I lived in New York, it was the 100 years anniversary for Jello. So I was doing a food event at, in New York with 40 different chefs. And I did, to celebrate that, I did a homemade jello, a raspberry, a coolie, uh, raspberry jingling with a little whipped cream. Simple. You know, I macerated berries and sugar, boil it, reduce it, strain the fruit, have a clear juice, make a jello with it. And it was a jingling dessert on a plate with a little whipped cream. And the amount of French chef walking by making fun of me was overwhelming. But Tim Zagat from Zagat Guy walked by, tested it, and he looked at me and said, dude, you're a genius. I loved it. Next day, the New York Times wrote about it, you know, because you need to embrace your surrounding. You need to embrace, you know, what people can connect and relate to. That's the success of a chef, you know. The customer base has to understand what you're doing. Have to know, have to embrace it and be excited about it, you know. Do I mean that every restaurant I'm going to open is going to be successful? No. But at least you're on the right track, you know. I don't believe in, in restaurant concept. I don't believe in it, you know. At the end of the day, it's well-crafted food, you know. It's well-executed and to be consistent. I mean, look at a restaurant operation or a pastry shop. You have one idea in your mind. 
you do a recipe, you show it to cooks. Those guys have to do it every day, nonstop. So the ability to be deluded and change, it's humongous, you know. And then that weather is in a good mood. It doesn't know how to sell. Does it feel welcoming? So your perception of a dish, it's way different, you know, the way you do. And that's a hard things to do day after day. I was teaching a class about food in Seattle with uh, engineers of uh, Microsoft. <clears throat> because I used to work in Northern Washington State. Our biggest clients were Microsoft. So we have non-stop group of Microsoft coming and they love food they are. Because, you know, that engineer mind wants to know why that corn pop. <clears throat> and you create, they love the story. So I was invited to talk to engineers to cook for them. And I say, you know, a computer program, it's easy. It's zero and ones coding. You upload, there's a mistake, you fix your coding and it's easier. But a restaurant, it's, it's huge. It's very difficult. So it's, start with me with a dish I create. Then I need to find the components to go on that dish. It has to be the same all the time. You know, is the lamb the same? Is it fatter, skinnier? Is it available? You know, can we change it, the, the produce? Then that's one step. Then I have to train my cooks. Can they execute the same way? And that cooks have to do the same dish over and over and over under pressure every day. And what is it what I created the same as goes on the table in front of the client? How do you create all the dots to make a success? And they were like blown away. And I'm like, you know, your job is easy. Mine is, you know, and we still have, we still work like in a like caveman, technically. You know, any engineer in software makes the world a bit better by creating. I mean, look at computers today. It's Look at your iPhone. It's like a marvel of ingenuity. Kitchen, we're still working like 200 years ago. You know, there is no moving forward. It's still uh, impact. 99% is human connection, interaction. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways you can do this. But one of those ways is through Patreon, the link of which is in the show notes for this episode. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can receive exclusive content just for you. So check it out. I'm sure you will enjoy. And also, it's a way of you supporting me and the podcast and more fabulous French foodies. So what better thing to do than support Fabulously Delicious by becoming a Patreon member? Thanks for listening to Fabulously Delicious. I wanted to ask you about butter, please. So I'm from Poitou Charente, where this well, not that I'm from there. I wish I was from there, but I live there now. And it's known for its butter. And of course, Brittany is, but Brittany is known for its butter to eat. You know, you slab a bit on with your baguettes. But the Poitou Charente is known for the butter for pastry chefs. Why is the butter different? Is it all butter just butter? A bit of marketing, a bit of. Um, okay. And I, I think Brittany's butter has. It's salted too, so you can expect salt from Brittany to, to have sea salt, and probably not in Chantepoix too, unless you ask for it. Um, probably the way it's raised, to my knowledge, uh, most of the cattle are grass-fed in Brittany, and you know it's heavier, more rain, so you could compare. Because here we have this issue here. I think our butter in North America has too much water. Uh, so it does affect your recipe, you know, the fat content is different. But I do get sometimes butter from uh, New Zealand, which is more richer, but it almost tastes like mutton, you know, like grassy, 
because in New, New Zealand butter are grass fed and New Zealand weather is very wet. And so um, I think it's a bit of marketing. You know, you never hear, I'm sure there is butter made in south of France, but it's, nobody heard about it, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> and in France, it's very strict in labeling and, you know, uh, uh, les produits d'origine. Uh, yeah, so it's more strict. Um, it, it, yeah, but uh, there's nothing like good butter, you know. I used to eat, uh, sometimes I find it here, it's called beurre déchiré. Oui, yes, yes. On baguette, a thick layer of, I mean, I, I, I eat my cheese and bread with butter. I put a layer of butter and a little apricot compote on the top, and that's just amazing. I mean, for me, it's probably the best breakfast I can have, uh, besides uh, two eggs over easy. I always save the end of the baguette yeah. for the butter at the end. So I've had cheese, but then at the end, it's just butter. Are there any specific, you know, we have all around the world, people will know things like the St. Honoré cake or uh, an eclair or any, you know, all these French uh, pastries that we know all around the world. But are there any specific Canadian pastries that we might not know about? Well, there, there is like beaver tail. Uh, it's like pastry filled with jam and pastry cream. Uh, so it's like almost like a chausson aux pommes. Uh, so it looks like a beaver tail. Um, but this is more like what you find in fairs and, you know, summertime. Um, there is this whole story around Nanaimo bar. It's, it's like an unsophisticated opera cake. <laughs> that was, and, and the uh, Canadians are very anal about it. It's like the way it's made. And, you know, for me, it's not that. I think it's more the... There is a huge amount of talented pastry chef in Canada. Like you'd be surprised. Uh, you come to Vancouver, the amount of world-class pastry chef, world-class pastry shop who could fit in Paris, you'd be you'd be surprised. You know, uh, Thomas Haas, uh, Chez Christophe, Chez Thierry, uh, and that because of the um, amount of immigrants living in Vancouver, they want those things. And, and, not, and they are successful. I mean, Thomas Haas has two pastry shops in Vancouver. Chez Thierry has two or three. Uh, Bel Café has four. Uh, Chez Christophe, two. And those are like guys who came from Europe. Some of them are local, uh, Boku bakeries, more rustic, more done to earth. But um, um, she learned everything here. So um, I got to say, Vancouver is blessed. Toronto, too. I just discovered a new pastry shop in Toronto. I'm going there. In a month, that's going to be my first stop. A uh, great chocolate shop who does bar to bean from scratch. And you'll be shocked how good it is, you know. Uh, so, you know, when I travel, I'm told, oh, in Canada, you eat poutine. Yeah, we do. But there is world-class product, world-class pastry. Well, we have no, you don't need to, you know, 20 years ago, you needed to fly to Europe. You don't need today. You can travel within Canada and eat your way out for a quarter of the price. <laughs> Finally, my question that I ask everybody on Fabulously Delicious. So I have to ask you, um, you have to have a think about it, I think, but what to you is the most fabulous thing about France? I think what we don't, uh, French music, you know, techno, house, French house music, uh, it's extremely creative and it's embraced and used all over the world, thanks to immigrants who come to France who contribute a lot to every aspect of music. 
French music, it's used in LA, and you know, if, if you take Rihanna, uh, all the <clears throat> the hip hop artists, they all work with French DJs and French house music for that new tones, and people forget about it. I mean, there is a Coachella uh, festival this week, and two two of the biggest group are French. I never heard about them, but they came from France because the sound is different. You know, David Guetta created that sound like other people grab and took. So that's a part of music people, you know, everybody think good music is English. It's, 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 it's been, make it, they made it better for the vast audience, but they always learn and, you know, uh, come back to the French. It's one part, you know, even in in Vegas, I have a friend who worked for Celine Dion. <clears throat> He told me five years ago, 80% of tickets sold in Las Vegas were out of Quebec creation. Céline Dion and three Cirque du Soleil shows were run at the same time in Las Vegas. Every year, we're talking about $4 billion of tickets. 80% were Canadian-created content, French-speaking creation of, and people forget about it. So it's a strength. I think French culture is very unique and creative. When I travel, the French language unique you unite people in a way that English or Spanish does not unite people. Bruno, thank you so much for your time today on Fabulously Delicious. You've been wonderful to hear about your story and and how you are not just a judge on the Great Canadian Bake Off, but also a really fabulous pastry chef and uh, a leader in pastry industry, I would say. So thank you very much for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. Okay, thank you for having me and a wonderful time. And and yeah, take care and thank you. Bye-bye. Merci beaucoup. Merci. Okay, de rien. Au revoir. Au revoir. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.